Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Mike Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 337th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, brought to you today by AHIMA. And joining me this morning is my co-host, the very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD Incorporated. Good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and hello, everyone. This morning, our lead story is about the proposed E&M changes. Your friend Sally Stryber will join us later in the broadcast to report the first of her two-part series, Proposed E&M Changes, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. That's right. Today, Sally will be reporting on the ugly aspects of the proposed E&M Changes. That's right. And then next Tuesday, Sally's going to return with Part 2, the Good and the Bad for the proposed E&M Changes. Also on today's broadcast is nationally prominent psychiatrist H. Stephen Moffick. Happy anniversary, Dr. Moffick. <laughs> Dr. Moffick will be reporting on physician burnout. That's right. His reporting on burnout comes at about the same time when much of the nation is grappling with unseasonably hot weather. Are you feeling the burn, Erica? Not today. It's cool and raining here. Good for you. And later in the broadcast, you're going to report on your firsthand experience as being a patient advocate for your father, your ailing 87-year-old father. Now that has been making me feel a burn. <laughs> well, you know, not everybody has your experience as a former physician. So who can you turn to for patient advocacy while joining us with an epilogue to your reporting this morning is going to be Caitlin Donovan. Caitlin is the Director of Outreach and Public Affairs for the National Patient Advocate Foundation. And the National Football League continues to make payments to former players who have been diagnosed not only with CTE, but also Parkinson's and ALS. Reporting from the Talk 10 News Desk is Lori Johnson. Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to visit the new ICD Monitor webcast subscription portal. See the link in the handout tab in today's program or visit the ICD University web store. Here now is Lori Johnson. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, Erica, and hello out there to our faithful listeners. It is hard to believe that fall is right around the corner, and not only is it getting darker earlier in the day, but the NFL preseason games are happening. I'm looking forward to rooting for my favorite NFL team, the Pittsburgh Steelers. I began reporting on chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or it's referred to as CTE, in January 2016. The LA Times recently reported on the NFL player claims with regards to CTE settlement. Not only are the players filing for CTE, but they're also filing for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, which is coded as G12.21. It's also referred to as Lou Gehrig's disease. And Parkinson's disease, which is coded as G20. There has been 81 Parkinson's and 30 ALS claims paid or approved, which total $146.5 million. When you look at the original fund, which was set aside, totaled $675 million, you can see that this burn rate, that the fund will not survive the 65 years that was estimated. So I, I want to also talk about some of the clinical information regarding to Parkinson's and ALS. Parkinson's disease has five stages, according to the Parkinson's Foundation. 
Stage one is mild symptoms, including a change in posture, a tremor, changes in facial expressions. Stage two, we have um, daily tasks that are more difficult. Movement is affected on both sides rather than just on one side. Stage three is a loss of balance, slow to move. Stage four, the movement requires a walker or the patient is unable to live alone. The patient will require assistance for activities of daily living. At stage five, the patient is bedridden or wheelchair-bound, and the patient can experience hallucinations. ALS is a progressive disease that only impacts the motor neurons. The symptoms vary from patient to patient and include slurred speech, difficulty swallowing, and moving hands and feet. Eventually, the respiratory muscles are affected and the patient is placed on a ventilator. The topic of CT has been studied, and it appears that repetitive trauma to the head increases the likelihood of not just CTE, but Parkinson's disease, ALS, and other neurological disorders. On another note for... The news, I wanted to call everyone's attention that the Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting is September 11th and 12th. You can watch and comment online, and I have put the tentative agendas um, for both diagnosis and procedure on the handout tab, so you can download them rather than find them on the CMS website. So back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Lori. That was Senior Healthcare Consultant Lori Johnson. Lori is with Rodin Cycle Solutions. And you can read her reporting on clinical indicators of these two new diagnoses, Parkinson's and ALS, found among former NFL players in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor E-News. It's Tuesday, it's August 21st, 2018, and you're listening to the 337th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Talk 10 Tuesday is brought to you today by AHEMA, the American Health Information Management Association. Join your peers in Miami, Florida, September 22nd and 23rd at the annual Clinical Coding Meeting. This perfect mix of business and pleasure will cover outpatient and physician coding, inpatient coding, CDI, revenue cycle, compliance, auditing, and industry hot topics. Don't miss this great opportunity for learning through educational presentations and peer-to-peer collaboration and discussions. All full advanced online registrations will receive a free 2019 AHEMA edition codebook. Plus, they are pleased to offer CNEs again this year. For more information, visit ahema.org slash clinical coding. Thank you, Clark Anthony. An unprecedented heat wave has gripped the northern hemisphere, and we're feeling the heat, especially here in California with 20 active wildfires. But there's another heat, burnout. A recent study reveals that 52% of physicians feel burned out regularly. The implications of burnout are life-threatening. Here now with more on physician burnout is Ashley prominent psychiatrist, Dr. H. Stephen Moffat. You know, I think the last time you and I reported on burnout was when you linked climate change to Earth Day, and everybody was feeling the burn at that time. Yes, Chuck. Burn is indeed the word, as we'll be trying now to make some updated good, bad, and ugly connections between burning up and burning out. First, some eyewitnesses. Quote, the council was very compassionate. It was my first lesson in receiving help. So commented a survivor of the Santa Rosa, California fires of last fall. He went on in the recent media interview. It triggered a lot of old stuff that experienced all the way back to childhood. That is typical of PTSD. 
He added that the early support has helped him to be calmer, especially in dealing with the red tape and trying to rebuild. Here's a corresponding commentary from a disaster hotline director. During the long term, we start to see other, deeper mental health concerns from callers and texters, such as persistent anxiety, depression, and substance abuse. And from a psychiatrist therapist, quote, it was an absolute trauma for everybody involved. How do you develop resistance? Community training and planning before disasters is a must in adapting to a new normal. Such is the like of what we can expect in the aftermath of the new and unprecedented fires in California. There is also related irritability, violence, and suicide risk that increase from the temperature and fire heat. First responders are also subject to such repercussions. Secondary responders, like physicians and other helpers, may become overwhelmed and suffer compassion fatigue, losing the very compassion that the Santa Rosa survivor thought was so helpful. Not only that, but with the loss of compassion, the passionate fire for our work subsides, losing some of its fuel, turning often into barely burning embers. Imagine that in your physician. As our climate warms, climate instability increases in various locales around the world. The poor, especially in heat-trapping asphalt jungles, have less external resources to recover. Physicians and other clinicians thereby encounter greater need, but most everywhere, a lot of the time, system obstacles, inadequate resources, and bureaucracy all contribute to our epidemic rate of burnout. You should note that actually, wellness programs don't work so well. Prevention is the key. Both problems elicit the psychological defense mechanism of denial, conscious and unconscious. Due to such denial, clinicians need to be on the lookout for overt or covert anxiety in patients about the environment and the future. After all, what citizen wants to accept that the risk of encountering disasters is increasing, that their behavior has helped to cause it, that they are more at risk for solastalgia, which is grief, grief for an undesired change in one's environment, or climate anxiety? Neither of these syndromes is yet ICD-11 diagnostically worthy, but they may become so. What clinician wants to accept that their ability to heal is being thwarted? No wonder physicians better recognize burnout in their colleagues than in themselves. New York Times Sunday Magazine of August 5th was solely devoted to a missed opportunity to globally address climate change in the 1980s, with the United States leading the roadblock. The same was true of physician burnout back then as we had small pockets of epidemic burning out in community psychiatrists and HMO physicians as insurance tried to save clinical money to make profits. Now we have a second opportunity that even more urgently needs our attention. Indeed, just like we hold parents responsible when they leave their children in a hot, locked car, we all have some responsibility for our heating up our earthly vehicle, where we and our children will live and get health problems, needing healthy physicians. Back to you, Erica. Thank you, Dr. Moffick. That was nationally prominent psychiatrist H. Stephen Moffick. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. Thank you very much, Dr. Moffick. And we're proud to say that Dr. Moffick is a Talk 10 Tuesday resident psychiatrist. And we're also proud of the new ICD-10 Monitor webcast subscription portal. Here you can find the most important healthcare topics and the industry's most knowledgeable thought leader to help educate your team to a higher level of inspired performance. To visit the new portal, see the link in the handout tab of today's broadcast or visit the ICD University Bookstore. Well, you know, the backlash continues over the CMS proposed EM changes, so much so that we continue with our series, CMS, Are You Listening? 
Here now with part one of our two-part series, Proposing M Changes, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, is Sally Stryver. Good morning, Sally. Sally, you're talking about the ugly part of it today, right? I am. Well, good morning, everyone. I was listening to a news report a few days ago discussing the current and future uh, expected shortage of health care providers in the United States. Several ideas were discussed about how to remedy the situation, and it struck me that we have a partial solution right in front of us. And that brings us to the ugly. One of the most available and immediate solutions available to support the ever-growing healthcare needs in our country is telehealth. Based on my reading of the 2019 proposed rule, telehealth parameters continue to, be requ- to require the patient who is at an originating site to be outside of a metropolitan, metropolitan statistical area. A metropolitan statistical area, or an MSA, must contain at least one urban area with at least 50,000 inhabitants. Our friends at the Office of Management and Budget use MSAs to collect and publish federal statistics. So in order to determine if your patient's originating site meets the Medicare parameters, you can actually enter the originating site address into the Medicare Telehealth Payment Eligibility Analyzer. If the address comes back as outside of an MSA, this is a viable originating site for telehealth, and telehealth is viable. This geographic parameter limits the ability to use telehealth services to their potential. Telehealth, as a way of providing needed clinical services, needs to be treated like nearly every other type of clinical care, and appropriate and reasonable methods to document this care need to be established. As an example of a different way to utilize telehealth, in Ohio, the Medicaid program requires the patient at the originating site to be outside of a five-mile radius from the location of the provider. It's not perfect, but it's better. There are two situations where the geographic originating site parameters are proposed to be eliminated. For ESRD-type visits and emergency room or mobile stroke unit visits for treating uh, patients um, who are appearing to have an acute stroke. The second part of the ugly involves the proposed 50% reduction in, of the least expensive service when both an E&M service and a procedure are performed on the same date of service. This will likely do two things. The first, unless there's no reasonable clinical alternative, procedures will be scheduled on a date of service after the evaluation and management service has taken place. And second, these additional visits will inconvenience patients and take up unnecessary and unavailable appointment appointment slots in an already overburdened system. This also does nothing to help support efficient and effective patient care in an environment that is already understaffed. My last point involves the estimated annual savings of time for our providers derived from the lessened amount of documentation required if the standards are lowered to that of a new patient visit level 2 or an established patient at a level 2. This is supposed to save approximately 51 hours annually. Yes, I said annually, based on a 40% Medicare patient base. This works out to be a little more than one hour per working week in a year. In an environment where we hear that providers are seeing patients for 10 hours a day and then spending their evenings completing their notes just to get ready to start over in the morning, this is a very slight amount of saved time when compared to the total amount of time devoted to clinical documentation. When we get to the point of saving providers an hour or two a day, we'll have actually done something valuable. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Sally. That was my good friend, Sally Stryber. Sally is the president of Practical Coding Solutions, LLC. 
Next Tuesday, Sally returns with part two, proposed E&M changes, the good and the bad. And a program note, we continue our celebration of Ipsapalooza with part three of our three-part coding workshop series, this one on MSDRG changes. It's coming your way this Thursday, August 23rd at 1.30 p.m. Eastern here at ICD-10 Monitor. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, I now find myself in a new role as a patient advocate for my 87-year-old father. Uh, I am going to tell you a little story, and then we are going to be joined by the Director of Outreach and Public Affairs for the National Patient Advocate Foundation, Caitlin Donovan. So, here we go. I have an interesting saga to share with our audience. The last week of June, my 87-year-old dad, who lives in Florida, who was previously a walkie-talkie who still drove at night, was complaining about being dizzy. So he told my sister he was discontinuing his torsamide. I talked to him and asked him what it was on for. It's a water pill. And I told him the rule was, if he didn't know what it was for, he wasn't allowed to stop it without talking to his doctor. So he talked to his doctor, who thought his weight was down, so they stopped the diuretic. And then June 25th, his housekeeper found him lying on the floor with a head laceration. When he got to the hospital, they discovered his heart rate was in the 20s, so he needed a pacemaker. No wonder he was dizzy. He had a CT scan of his brain for the fall since he was on Pradaxa, which is a blood center, for atrial fib. Three hospital days later, he went to a subacute rehab facility near my stepsister, and then he was discharged with home PT. I went to visit with him the last full week of July. His memory was never great, and it has deteriorated in recent years, although he does not carry a diagnosis of dementia. While I was there, we toured a great facility and put down a deposit on an independent living community where he could potentially age in place. I was hoping he could enjoy the rest of whatever time he has left. I left on Friday. That next Monday, his housekeeper called and said he was sleepy. When we couldn't reach him that afternoon, my step-brother-in-law checked on him and found him lying face down in a pool of blood. His CT scan at this time showed a large chronic subdural hematoma with mass effect and midline shift. When the ED called to suggest he be transferred to a trauma center for evacuation, I kindly reminded the doctor to document brain compression and encephalopathy. Thank goodness he did well. And the pressing issue became where to send him after the hospitalization. And Ron Hirsch helped me out with this. The case manager told me that the rehab he had been at previously refused him because July 1st, while he was in the previous rehab, he was switched from traditional Medicare to United Healthcare Medicare Advantage PPO. So I got on the phone and spent three hours in conference calls between the SNF and the insurer to facilitate his being able to be admitted there. Just after getting them to agree, I was informed that the medical service really wanted to send him to the acute inpatient rehab affiliated with the trauma center. But it wasn't over yet. Friday afternoon at 4.30 p.m., they informed me that his insurance company had denied the IRF admission because he could be managed at a facility with a lower level of care and that the medical team had until 3 p.m. the next business day to do a peer-to-peer. I was apoplectic. If the neurosurgeon wanted him in the IRF, that's where he should go. I typed up suggested verbiage and emailed it to my brother who happened to be at my father's bedside, but he was a little reluctant to give it to the HCP. So 
on Saturday, I spoke with the insurance nurse's line for 45 minutes. The nurse I spoke to read me the criteria for approving the IRF, and he met them all. I had to keep reminding her that we were on a recorded line because she seemed to agree with my indignation, and I didn't want her to get in trouble. So I contacted the weekend medicine doctor. Since I was not obligated by compliance rules, I told him he needed to document that, in his medical opinion, according to his experience with older patients with brain bleeds, an acute inpatient rehab afforded my father the best chance of regaining his pre-event functionality, that he felt having intensive inpatient physical and occupational therapy was crucial to his recovery. My brother also spoke with the neurosurgeon and implored him to document similarly. My dad was released from the acute inpatient rehab facility yesterday, and in a few weeks, I will be moving him up to come live by me in Cleveland at an assisted living near me. There are a few morals to this story. Medicare Advantage is not the same coverage and acceptance as traditional, traditional Medicare, no matter what they claim. If any of you have elderly parents, I strongly recommend you proactively help them get their bills on auto pay and make a list of all their passwords in case you need to access their accounts and actually could get them on the account as an approved um, representative. We have to advocate for our loved ones to be sure that they are appropriately cared for and don't be afraid to be assertive. Encourage providers to document to paint a detailed picture for the insurer and don't be afraid to suggest verbiage if it will help. You are not being their CDI and you, do, you can be leading. And finally, if you move your father to an assisted living facility, make sure the only station he can get is not Fox News. I spent all day yesterday arranging for emergency cable TV. Chuck, back to you. Thanks, Erica, very much for sharing that very personal journey. For many of us, especially yours truly without a medical degree, having to advocate for a loved one's got to be a very daunting experience. So where can you turn to for help here now with advice as the Director of Outreach and Public Affairs for the National Patient Advocate Foundation, Caitlin Donovan. Good morning, Caitlin. Welcome to the broadcast. Good morning, Chuck. Erica, I'm so sorry to hear about what you're going through, and unfortunately it's not that surprising. Our health system is incredibly hard to navigate. Our professional, our professional case managers take, on average, about 22 phone calls to resolve a case. I often explain to people that I'm in the top percentage of people who understand how to resolve these issues, and it's still taken me over a year's worth of phone calls to resolve really simple billing mistakes. Caregiving is just incredibly difficult and can take a huge hold all on families. I recently worked with a family in Minnesota, upper middle class, insured, who have two girls with serious conditions and who were advised to get divorced. So that way the father could declare bankruptcy and the mother could go on public insurance plan with the girls. Unfortunately, in the United States today, our health system is set up in terms of treating a disease instead of really addressing the entire spectrum of what people need. And really, medical necessity needs to go beyond what patients need and increasingly what family caregivers need as a unit of care. For one thing, our system rests on the assumption that someone will be there as a caregiver in the house, when increasingly that won't be the case. We're facing what a lot of experts call a silver tsunami and that we have way more people who are retiring and who will need medical assistance, and they don't have those family caregivers in the house, either because they didn't have children or because they live far away and the system just doesn't support the needs of these people appropriately. 
Part of our work as an organization is, follow, is forcing the system to recognize and involve caregivers in the treatment plan process. We find that when that happens, not only are there better outcomes because of adherence, because there are just better health outcomes. There are some signs of improvement. CMS just passed down a rule that will allow Medicare to begin covering some health services, which will be really, really helpful for a lot of people, but it's still not good enough. So if you need help, at Patient Advocate Foundation, we have professional case managers who are here to help you for free if you have a confirmed diagnosis of a chronic, life-threatening, or debilitating disease like cancer, heart disease, diabetes, or autoimmune conditions like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. We also provide assistance for people who are uninsured by helping them access public programs, enroll in health insurance, and access charity care. So our case managers are amazing. Uh, they often are registered nurses or have degrees in social work, and they take the lead on both everyday health access issues for patients along with incredibly complex healthcare situations. I mean, I've listened to them work with patients who needed to get a ride to the doctor's office, and I've also helped them with a homeless cancer patient who was being discharged from the hospital and whose needs were understandably incredibly complicated. But their approach is fairly simple, and one that I'd encourage anyone to take on as well. They evaluate step-by-step what patients' primary needs are along with underlying needs. So while they may start off talking about a medical bill, it'll often lead to finding them resources to pay their rent or get transportation. If you're interested in working with one of our case managers, I encourage you to look at our webpage, patientadvocate.org, for contact information. And there you can also see a list of our dedicated open care lines, which include a colorectal care line, genomic testing, heart valve disease, hepatitis C, HIV, AIDS, and prevention, IBD, lung, breast, and prostate cancer, along with our partnerships with a lot of big nonprofit organizations like Livestrong, American Cancer Society, and LLS. Even if you don't qualify for aid or for one of our case managers, you may not have one of those conditions that I listed, there are plenty of free resources for you to use. You can check out our website, once again, at patientadvocate.org, and you're going to find guides to the appeals process, sample letters for you to use for your own use, and you can also download our app, which I really encourage people to look at because what it does is you put in your own or your patient's age, their gender, and their location, and you can find all sorts of resources for you locally and nationally, be it if you need transportation needs or you need help getting into a clinical trial. It's a really great resource to start. Um, If you have any other questions, you can contact us through the webpage, um, and I encourage all your listeners, Chuck, to do so. Thanks very much, Caitlin. That was the Director of Outreach and Public Affairs with the National Patient Advocate Foundation, Caitlin Donovan. Thanks, Caitlin, very much. Uh, we don't have time to uh, answer the question. that you want to make a comment, though, Dr. Ronald Hirsch said, former physician, once a physician, always a physician. I direct that to you, Dr. Erica Reamer. I want to thank you very much for being with us. That's going to be a wrap for this, our 337th edition of Talk to Tuesday. And Eric and I want to thank our guests today, Laurie Johnson, Dr. Stephen Moffick, Sally Striver, Caitlin Donovan, whom you just heard, and of course, Dr. Eric Reamer. I hope you're going to be with us next Tuesday for another edition of Talk to Tuesday. And please join me today at 1.30 p.m. for part one of our three-part series, 
on the coding workshop. This one today is going to be on the new changes of ICD-10-CM. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck speaking on behalf of Dr. Eric Reamer and everybody here at Tucked In Tuesday at ICD-10 Monitor. Thanks for joining us and have a great week, everyone. Tucked In Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.